0: First John chapter 1, in verse 8, John writes, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The Apostle John has told us about the historical, tangible, physical reality of Jesus in verses one through seven. And now he's going to talk about the reality of sin. Walking in the light is explained in verses 8 through 10. As a matter of fact, I have a note in my Bible. It says, through the word of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit shows that the Christian, that he, number one, still possesses the old nature. That's verse 8. And number two, needs forgiveness of sins. That's verses 9 and 10. Why does John deal with this issue? Why does he feel the need to address this issue of the reality of sin even in the life of the believer? Again, I've already introduced to you the idea that when John is writing these words, already the church has become infested with false teachers and false doctrines. The false teachers and the false doctrines were infecting the church. Some of the false teachers argued that the most important thing in the Christian life wasn't how you behaved, but what you believed. Some claimed that they were free from sin. Some claimed that because Jesus had forgiven all sins, past, present, and future, they were free to sin without impunity. It never occurred to them that sin hinders fellowship, that it hurts God's heart, that it not only hinders fellowship with God, but it hinders fellowship with each other and remember that's what he's written in verse 3. Remember the reasons why he's written written this little epistle so that we could have fellowship in verse 3 so we could experience joy in verse 4 so that we don't sin chapter 2 verse 1 so that we could avoid deception in chapter 2 verse 26 so that we could know the truth about what it means to have a right relationship with God and that we could have assurance of that salvation in chapter 5 verse 13. And remember, there were a group of people. They were called the Gnostics. And that word might sound strange to you. It's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. The G is silent. It came from a Greek word which meant knowledge or understanding. These false teachers, the Gnostics, they claimed that they had special knowledge, special insight, a special revelation from God. Some who claim this special knowledge gave themselves permission to live lives of personal indulgence and sinful excess. And when you become a Christian, something amazing happens in your life. I don't know about you, but when I received Christ as my Lord and, and Savior, I experienced this freedom from guilt, this supernatural cleansing in my heart. And I was so grateful that God had saved me. And then the next day I did something wrong and I was shocked because I thought that when Jesus saved me, he was also going to purify me and make sure that I didn't do stupid wrong things ever again. But then I discovered something and this might come as a shock The worst things, the worst things that I've ever done. I didn't do before I became a Christian. It was afterwards. You see, before I I became a Christian, I was a sinner both by nature and by choice. I was a slave of sin and a servant of sin. But when I became a Christian, when I gave my heart to Jesus, I gave God permission to inform my heart and inform my thinking and allow the Holy Spirit to live inside of me. In other words, I knew better. So John is going to address this issue. How bad is sin? What does it do? John argues that it's possible for people to say that they're in the light. We've already read that. But actually live in darkness. So he brings up Four lies. Number one, they lie about fellowship in verses 6 and 7. Remember what it said earlier? If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So he's saying that there was a group of people. They said that they were in fellowship with God. And they wanted to be in fellowship with other Christians, but they were walking in darkness. And so John points it out, that they weren't being exactly honest. And number two, they lie about human nature, saying that they have no sin in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So not only do they lie about fellowship and not do they not only do they lie about human nature saying that they have no sin, but number 3 they lie about the sinful deeds saying that they have not sinned. In verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And number 4 they lie about obedience, claiming that they've kept God's commands, claiming that they're walking with Jesus, but it's not true. And we're going to find that out in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. So for the person who argues Christians cannot sin, John replies, tragically, unfortunately, Christians do sin. But that doesn't mean that they have to be saved all over again. Remember, sin for the Christian, for the person who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't remove you from God's relationship, but it does hinder your fellowship. So to walk in the light is to live in fellowship with the Father and the Son. John is arguing that sin interrupts fellowship. But there are people who believe that sin kills the soul so much so that it has to be born again. I was... I was raised in that kind of a religious tradition. I was raised in a religious tradition that believed that there were two kinds of sins. A mortal sin and a venial sin. In the religious tradition that I grew up in, I was taught that the mortal sin kills your soul. So much so that your soul would have to be renewed again and again and again. But the Bible doesn't teach that. One Bible writer says, quote, sin in the life of the believer breaks fellowship, but it doesn't destroy sonship. Again, the writer is Warren Wearsby. He says, quote, a true Christian is always accepted even if he's not acceptable. How does God provide for the sins of the saints? We know that Jesus' blood And sacrifice provides forgiveness for the sinner. But what about the saint? Wearsby writes Through the heavenly ministry of Christ, we're saved from the penalty of sin by his death Romans chapter five, verse six. We're saved daily from the power of sin by his life, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And so one of the things that we're going to learn over and over again from this particular epistle is that we are saved from the penalty of sin. That means we're going to go to heaven instead of hell. We're saved from the power. We are being saved from the power of sin. That means that every day as a Christian... We are learning what it means to appropriate the power of God so that we can live a life pleasing to God. And then the Bible even promises that one day we're going to be removed from the presence of sin. We're going to be taken out of this world and we're going to go to heaven. The apostle John wants the Christian to think rightly about the Savior and also about sin You see, we Christians have a choice. We can cover our sin. We can conceal our sin. Or we can confess and reveal our sin. You see, the truth is, unless sin is confessed, it will fester. Unless it's confessed like a sore that gets infected, it will inflame The wound, and then it will attack the body. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to spot other people's sin? And how easy it is to confess their sin? You're lying. You're not telling the truth. That's just wrong. You shouldn't do that. How come it's so easy for us to recognize other people's sin and confess their sin, but not our own? By the way, the Bible doesn't call us to confess other people's sins. It it calls us to confess our own. And so John's going to write, number one, we can cover our sin. Look what it says in 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I want to draw your attention specifically to something in the text because it's going to be very, very important. The word sin in verse 8 is singular. Note there's no S at the end of the word. If we say that we have no sin, what's he making reference to? He's making reference to the sin nature. He's not talking about if we say that we have no sin in the sense of, I didn't do something wrong or I didn't didn't sin in the sense of saying something wrong or doing something wrong. It seems to be a reference to the sin nature. And so what do I mean by the sin nature? Well, I mean what the Bible seems to say about fallen human beings. According to the Bible, we're born in sin and rebellion. You'll remember David wrote in Psalm 51:3, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin, by its very definition, is a transgression. It's a crossing of the line. The line that's been established by God in God's holy law. Jesus saw the human heart as corrupt and diseased in Matthew chapter 15, verse 9. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that in me there dwells no good thing. So according to the Bible, sin is an operating principle. The Bible speaks of sin as an unbearable weight in Psalm thirty or Psalm 38.4. It says, as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. The Bible describes sin as a tyrannical master in Romans 6, 17. You were the servants of sin, Paul writes. The Bible describes sin as a lurking monster. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, you'll remember that the Lord is confronting Cain. And the Bible says, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. According to the Bible, sin found its way into the human condition via Adam and Eve. All of you are familiar with the story in Romans, or excuse me, in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story about Adam and Eve. You know the story about the talking serpent. You know how the serpent invites Eve to disobey God and take the fruit and eat it and die. Paul confirms this in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 where it says Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, that means spiritually separation from God, and eventually separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. Sin is a spiritual death sentence to all human beings who have been born from Adam. Of course, with the exception of Jesus. Someone has said that one who has the light view of sin or the person who has a light view of sin never has any great thoughts about God. And I think that that's right. Because God hates sin. It's been my experience that almost every single false doctrine that I can ever think of begins with a wrong view of God. It continues with a wrong view of Jesus. And then it continues even further with a wrong view about sin. We're not sinners simply because we do sinful things. We do sinful things because we're sinners, according to the Bible. And so John repeats the phrase in verse 6. Read it for yourself. If we say that we have fellowship. Look what it says in verse 10. Or actually in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin. If we say that we have not sinned in verse 10. So over and over again, he's going to repeat the phrase, if we say, verse 6, here in verse 8, again in verse 10. Why do you suppose that John repeats this phrase? Is it because we're stupid and childish? I'm going to suggest to you that that's not the reason at all. Is it because he's not a very substantial writer? I don't think that that's the reason at all. I think what he's trying to bring to the reader's attention is that people can say whatever they want. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Anyone is free to say whatever they want. People can cover their sin by lying. We can cover our sin by lying to others in verse 6. We can pretend to be in fellowship with God when deep down inside of our hearts we know that it's not true in verse 8. And so John writes, if we say that we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves. The people in verse 6 fail to do the truth. The people in verse 8 fail to admit the truth. The people in verse 10 fail to do the truth. And when they fail to do the truth or admit the truth, they wind up misrepresenting God. And so we discover something. We can cover our sin or we can conceal our sin at the end of verse 8. And the truth is not in us. And so at the end of verse 8, when he says, if we say that we have no sin and we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, what truth do you suppose he's talking about? What is the truth that he's talking about? Is it the truth about God? I think that that the answer is yes. Is it the truth about Jesus? Is the answer yes. It's the truth about the gospel. It's the truth about the availability of sin and forgiveness. It's the truth about the horror of sin and the remedy for sin. But the unbeliever can deny the existence of sin. And some religions do exactly that. Hinduism, Buddhism, they teach that sin is an illusion. And I remember taking a a train ride in India with a Hindu and I said, let me ask you something. Um, If there's no such thing as sin, why is there such a thing as good and bad karma? And who determines it? Man, you are asking some really tough questions. Let me think about that. For the people who believe that sin is an illusion... Those modern manifestations of Gnosticism have reincarnated into the popular culture and it appears in the form of certain belief systems. You may or may not be familiar with Christian science or religious science. Christian science is a funny kind of a group because they're sort of like grape nuts. Grape nuts aren't grapes and they're not nuts. And Christian science isn't Christian and it isn't science. Christian science and mind science, like Hinduism and Buddhism, teach that matter and evil are unreal. All in in harmony, sin, disease, and death are, are illusions. And I remember having a conversation with a lady who was a Christian scientist, and she told me, sin is an illusion. It's not real. She happened to be an older lady. And I did something I regret. I said, do you look the same as you did when you were 19? She was about 60. She said, no. And I said, do you have a mirror? She said, yes. I said, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Look long and hard in the mirror. How do you explain that? How do you explain That you're not the same as you were when you were 18 or 19. How what is the mirror telling you about who you are? I go, do you use deodorant? She said, Of course. I go, don't you realize that the reason why you use deodorant is because bacteria is growing in your armpits and it's releasing an odor. You see, the cells in your body, they're dying. Everything that is happening to you is because the Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. To the spiritualist, whatever is right is right. Evil either doesn't exist or is in fact good. In Eastern mysticism, sin is absent and and the forgiveness of sin is, is ignored. So sin to the Eastern mystic is a failure to follow one's dharma or path. In the meditations of Maharishi, he writes quote, sin means wrongdoing or wrong thinking due to discontentment. Suffering is the result of some wrongdoing in the past. What he basically is saying is there is the manifestation of what seems to be wrong, which results in suffering, but even that is an illusion. And their beliefs are the opposite of what the Bible calls true. And that's why it can say at the end of verse 8, and the truth is not in us. Even some in the church have adopted some of these non-biblical ideas. Hinduism, Gnosticism, Liberal Christianity denied that the fall ever took place. I was talking to someone and they asked me, how important is it that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis be true? How do we know it's not a myth? How do we know that it's not an allegory? Did a real God create the heavens and the earth? Did he create Adam and Eve? Did he place them in a a garden? Did they disobey God? Is the sin and rebellion that is taught in the Bible true or not? And for many people, it's not true. For many people, they go, you know, that's just a myth or an allegory that tries to explain the human condition. But what they wind up doing is denying the truth that human beings are sinners in need of a savior. Over and over again, false teachers repeat the mantra that the true problem that human beings face is that they're ignorant of their divine origins and divine essence and divine future, that our ultimate problem is ignorance, and they provide the solution with secret knowledge, but the Bible teaches our ultimate problem is sin, and that Jesus is the only solution to that very real problem. And so, like I said, even some in the church have adopted some of these non-biblical ideas about sin. Robert Schuller, who died a few years back, taught, quote, Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem, unquote. And he also writes thus, quote, The core of sin is a lack of self-esteem, unquote. I can't swear it from the pulpit because it would just be wrong. But that's baloney. That's nonsense. That's not true. The Bible teaches no such thing. Sin, according to the Bible, is a transgression against God. It's a violation of what God says is true. It's not against oneself. As a matter of fact, John is going to write about that in chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. John will say sin is when God reveals that something is right and something is wrong, and you decide to do what is wrong. Sin is a transgression against God and his law. David said against you, and you only have I sinned in Psalm 51.4. Now, someone reading that might think, well, excuse me, Uh, what about Bathsheba? Um, She has an unwanted pregnancy. What about Uriah, whose husband you killed? What about the child who dies because of your rebellion? But in the grand scheme of things, When we compare the transgression that we cause each other, it's nothing compared to the offense that we've done to God. There was a young sarcastic man who told a preacher, you say that unsaved people carry a weight of sin. He said, I feel nothing. He said, how heavy is sin? Is it 10 pounds? Is it 80 pounds? The preacher replied by asking the youth, if you laid a 400 pound weight on a corpse, would it feel the load? The youth replied, it would feel nothing because it's dead. And the preacher said, that spirit too is dead, which feels no load of sin, or is indifferent to its burden and flippant it about its presence. Unquote. You see, the most dangerous thing that you could feel is nothing. You know, there's a reason why when you sin, it wounds your heart, it crushes your spirit, it invades your conscience. And you're grieved in your heart. Do you realize that if you didn't have a central nervous system, you would miss it? There's a reason why God, in His grace and His mercy, has given us a central nervous system. It's so that when something horrible and terrible happens to our body, we'll sense the pain and we will know that something has gone terribly wrong. And you see, for the Christian, the Christian... Insensitivity and in compassion is hypersensitive to sin. The mere fact that a person doesn't feel the weight of sin doesn't mean that sin doesn't exist. Sin, according to the Bible, is real. Augustine wrote, "Quote: Sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-independent, self-sustained, and that is exactly what the philosophical materialist believes. That is exactly what the atheistic scientist believes. He believes that the universe came into existence on its own and." And that you exist as a random act of circumstances over a long period of time. John has already told the reader, sin breaks fellowship with God in verses 6 and 7. So what does John have to say to the person who denies the reality of sin? What does John have to say to the person who denies the sinfulness of sin? John tells us that sin exists in the very core of our being. And heretics hate these verses. Since man's sinned, Satan has tried to convince the human race that the real human problem is superstition and ignorance. I've got to tell you something. Superstition and ignorance is a problem. But it's not the ultimate problem. Our real problem, according to some people, is that we are ignorant of our potential. Satan believes that we're sleeping gods, awaiting a change of consciousness that will propel us and transform us. The repeated lie of Satan in every age has been, you will be like gods. And so the Christian who conceals sin begins by lying to others in verse 6. The person who conceals sin still affirms that they're still walking with the Lord. They're pretending, they're playing, they want people to believe that they're close to the Lord. The Christian can go to church, they can go to youth group, they can go to the Bible study but they're not in fellowship with the Lord. They've grieved the Holy Spirit. They remain in their sin. And this is the miserable life for the Christian who wants to conceal their sin. I've used the illustration that my friend Greg Laurie uses. He calls them mugwumps. A mugwump is a person who's on the fence and their mug is on one side of the fence, and their wump is on the other side of the fence. They're the Christian who are living the most difficult of lives. They're trying to be in the light, and they're trying to be in the darkness, and they wind up being in neither place. They're too afraid to sin like the sinner. They want to hold on to just a little bit of religion. And so they live a double life a fraudulent life and the Christian who lives that life has to be on constant guard the Christian lives in fear of exposure you act like a Christian on the outside but you think and feel like an unbeliever you act like a Christian around Christians and then you act like an unbeliever around unbelievers and so life becomes a sham a pretense a veneer but it doesn't stop there when you lie to other people about your spiritual condition you inevitably lie to your self concealing sin covering sin without exception eventually leads to self deception Now you have to pretend that what you're doing isn't even wrong. It isn't even bad. And that it doesn't even matter. And I've seen people go to unbelievable extremes. I have seen people go to great measures to conceal their sin. One story sticks out. I'm going to change the name to protect anonymity and confidentiality I'm going to give this woman the name Gloria in Albuquerque she faked MPD MPD is multiple personality disorder she literally created personalities and made up personalities to conceal her adulterous affair with a pastor Because she couldn't live with the disconnect. And it just so happened her husband was a police officer. And she knew that if her husband found out, he would kill him. And so she fabricates this life. She makes up this life. She creates an alternative world inside of her heart in order to distance herself from her sin and from her difficulty. There was another guy named Mike Warnke, who's a matter of public record, who posed as a satanic high priest. He made the claims of pretending that he presided over a coven of witches that numbered around 1,200 people at the age of 19 he claimed to have known Charlie Manson personally but I knew it was a lie because I knew that in the time frame that he had given Charles Manson was already in prison because it just so happened that I worked for the Department of Social Services and one of Charles Manson's family members was on my caseload and so I knew a great deal about this particular person he fabricated a testimony it was believed by millions. Marjo Gortner was a child evangelist who later became an actor, and he told that he deceived thousands of people. He, for years, pretended that he was an evangelist, and he would go from place to place preaching fire and brimstone, inviting people to receive the Lord. And he said it was all a sham and a scam. He told how he deceived thousands of people. Hospitals and mental institutions are filled with people who attempt to conceal their sin and protect their self-deception. And so they create fantastic lies. Concealing sin leads to chastisement for the Christian. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, He says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and some of you sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened or disciplined by the Lord that we may not be condemned with this world. You see, the Christian, not the unbeliever, the Christian who wants to cover and conceal and distance himself or herself inevitably leads to pain and heartache and discipline and chastisement. And so in verse 9, look what it says. We can confess our sin. These are the big three options. Cover, conceal, or confess, look what John goes with. If we confess our sins, note. Remember in verse eight how it was singular, sin, the sin nature? Look what it says in verse nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On my radio program, someone asked me the question, does this verse refer to the unbeliever or to the believer? And I said, depending on the context, it could apply to either one. If the unbeliever is willing to confess his or her sin, if they're willing to turn from their sin and to embrace Jesus and believe the gospel, this verse isn't inviting people to confess their sin in the hope that they can somehow receive forgiveness apart from God, apart from Christ, and apart from the gospel. That's not the point, and that's certainly not the context. What is the context? It's fellowship. What is the context? Sin interrupts fellowship. What is the context? Look what the, the writer says. John, if we confess our sins, what does that mean? You might think that confess just simply means admit that what you've done is wrong. But, but it means more than that. Confess translates a Greek word that's very interesting. It's the Greek word homo logeo. It's a compound word. You know the word homo. It means same. Logeo means to speak. When you combine these two words together, it means to say the same thing or to speak the same thing. And so in the context, it means if we confess our, our sins, it means to say the same thing that God says about our sin. To, to say the same thing that God says about the solution to our sin. In a sense, it means to agree with God about our sin. Now, imagine if a person confesses, I made a mistake. And you go, clearly you did make a mistake. But I think that the Lord's looking for something else. It isn't just an admission that you made a mistake. It's an admission that this sin has broken your fellowship with God and it's broken your fellowship with each other that it has hurt you and it's hurt the body. And so that's in part what it means. We don't simply admit wrongdoing. We confess. We say the same thing that God says about our sin. And note sins is plural. It isn't simply confessing a sin nature, but rather our sins. And as we know, people don't like to call sin, sin. Freudian psychology helped promote the falsehood that there's no objective basis for guilt. Sin, according to the philosophical naturalist or the materialist psychologist, is a social or a cultural myth to explain unresolved guilt and shame. So you can ask your therapist and say, but is it real? Is it true? But imagine if you're talking to a person who doesn't even believe that there is a God or believe that there's such a thing as sin and that your sin doesn't hinder, interrupt, fellowship, then they're always going to get the wrong answer. Here's the Bible's testimony. God sent Jesus to die for our sins. For the person who denies the reality of sin or the horror of sin, it's because they've never carefully considered how God sees sin and its solution. Imagine you have the opportunity to talk to God and you say, Lord, how bad is sin in your sight? And then he begins to reveal to you the story of Jesus how he orchestrates all of human history to bring Jesus into the world. He allows Jesus to be born of a virgin. He allows Jesus to come into this world. He allows Jesus to live a perfect life. He allows Jesus to be spit on, isolated, tortured, and then cruelly murdered in order to deal with your sin your sin. This is what Jesus would have to do. Jesus counts or reckons or sees God counts or reckons or sees the death of Jesus as the payment of our sin. And so John makes a remarkable statement. The Lord would be unfaithful and unjust if he failed to forgive us. And so for the person who says to me, well, look, if our sin has been Forgiven, past, present, and future, why should I ever have to confess my sin? And the right answer has to be, your sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. Your sin has been forgiven so that you could have a relationship with God. So why do you confess your sin? Because the sin hinders the fellowship that you have with each other and with God. Does God love you? Of course he does. Does he forgive you in Christ? Yes. Are you going to heaven if you know and love Jesus? Of course you are. But for the person who chooses, for whatever reason, to remain in rebellion and disobedience as a child of God, as a son or a daughter of God, John is pointing out that whatever you're experiencing is not fellowship with God. So we have good news. Whenever a person's ready to uncover their sin, God's ready to cover them. Think about this for just a moment. John says, don't you cover your sin. Don't you conceal your sin. Confess your sin and let God cover your sin. You see, it's one thing for us to cover up our sin and it's another thing for God to cover your sin. And so guess what? The moment you reveal your sin and you go, Lord, I've done this. Lord, I did this. And God says, I'm willing to cover your sin. I'll cover it in the blood of Jesus. So what are our options? One, we can lie to others. Two, we can lie to others and then lie to ourselves. John's position is, If you are lying to others, and if you are lying to yourself, then eventually you'll lie to God or lie about God. And you can lie to others. And you can lie to yourself. And you can lie to God. But there's a fourth option we can confess our sin, we can forsake our sin. By the way, what happens if we lie to others, ourselves and God? Well, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not saved, if your sin hasn't been forgiven, if you continue in that sin, if you refuse to trust Christ, if you refuse to believe the gospel, the consequence is death and hell. And if you're a believer, a Christian, a child of God born again, the consequences are Chastisement, discipline, suffering. And I'm going to suggest to you sometimes even physical death. You see, there are people, there are people, there are people, there are Christians who would rather die than confess. And by the way, for the Christian, will there be a loss of reward here on the earth? I think so. The biggest loss is fellowship. Will there be a loss of reward in heaven? I think so. Are you saying that they're not saved? That's not what I'm saying at all. You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. But what happens if we confess and forsake sin? Jerry Vines, who's a wonderful writer, says, quote, When you confess your sin as a born-again child of God, a number of things take place in the unseen world. Every time we sin, we have an accuser. We have a prosecuting attorney who demands the death penalty because of our sin. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says, quote, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night, unquote. When we sin, we have an accuser. In heaven. When we confess our sin, we have an advocate in heaven. That means an attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we sin, we have an accuser. But look at verse one in the next chapter. I'm only going to touch on it briefly. We're going to touch on it a little bit later. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, you have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here, advocate means an attorney who's pleading your case in order to justify your position. So we actually have two attorneys. One is in heaven, Jesus. And one is on the earth, inside of you, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So the law firm of Jesus and the Holy Spirit with offices in heaven and earth are representing you constantly. Did you know that you have them on retainer? Lord, I think I need to retain your services. And that's exactly What he does. We'll talk more about that next week. But if you're lost, this passage and its principle doesn't apply to you. If you're lost, you're piling up sin. If you're lost, if you've never come into a right relationship with God and Christ, here's what you're doing. You are making deposits of judgment that one day will come to maturation. You have no advocate. All you have is an accuser. You have no satisfaction for sin. The warrant has been issued. You're still in your sin. But if you'll come to Christ, if you'll come to Christ, if you'll come to Jesus, he will agree to be your attorney and to represent your case in heaven. And so in verse 10, it says, if we say that we've not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We can't become righteous or sinless on our own. And so John is saying, if we say that we have not sinned, for the person who says, I've done nothing wrong, for the person who says, I've never offended God, for the person who says, I've never offended God, and I've never done anything worth going to hell for, the writer is saying then in effect what you're doing is you're suggesting that God's a liar because over and over again the repeated testimony throughout the Old and the New Testament is your sin is your sin is a problem your sin is a big problem the Bible says come come Let us reason together, you and I. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. How could anyone, in the light of what God has said about sin in the Bible, come to the conclusion that they don't have a sin problem? John Stott writes, quote, To say that we have not sinned is not just to tell a deliberate lie, verse 6, or to be deluded, verse 8 but to actually accuse God of lying, to make him a liar, and frequently declares that sin is universal, and the word of the gospel, which is the word of salvation, clearly assumes the sinfulness of man, unquote. In verse eight, it's a denial of the sin nature, and in verse 10, it's a denial of sinful actions. To claim sinlessness is proof that a person isn't walking with God. And so for the person who says God loves me and accepts me the way that I am apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, apart from grace, apart from forgiveness, isn't telling you the truth. This might come as a shock to you. You can either give up sin or you can give up hope. But you can't keep both sin and hope. Here's what John is arguing sin forsaken is the surest sign that your sin has been forgiven. All sin begins by lying to others, then deceiving yourself. But it will always end with an accusation against God. So what have we learned? Number one, how does God remove sin? He cleanses from sin with the blood of Jesus. That's God's part. Here's what God is willing to do. If you say, I'm not going to conceal my sin anymore, I'm not going to cover my sin anymore, I'm going to confess my sin and forsake my sin, then Jesus promises to forgive your sin. Remember what we've been talking about in this little book, Signs of Genuine Saving Faith. For the person who wonders, am I really a Christian? Do I really have a right relationship with God? Well, number one, do you enjoy fellowship with God's people? That's verse three. Number two, would you would people say that you walk in the light or walk in darkness? That's verses six and seven. And number three, do you admit your sin? Confess your sin. That's verses eight through 10. You see, if you genuinely enjoy fellowship with God and God's people, if you genuinely walk in the light instead of darkness, if you genuinely confess your sin and forsake your sin, then you have every reason to be confident that God's at work in your life. Do you see how powerful this is? Does sin destroy our relationship with God? No. Does it hurt our fellowship? Yes. So if you'd like to renew your fellowship, Christian, all you have to do is come clean with yourself and with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you love us and that you care for us. Thank you, Lord, that fellowship matters. And that, Lord, when you wrote this book, you allowed this book to be written by John. It's so that we could experience real fellowship with each other and real fellowship with you. And so again, Lord, we pray that you would continue to keep us sensitive Lord, we pray that you would keep us sensitive. That, Lord, we would sense when fellowship has been hindered. And, Lord, I pray for the Christian right now who has unconfessed sin. I just pray by your Holy Spirit that you would reveal it to him and her. That you would tenderly and lovingly remind them that you love them so much. And that if they will refuse... to continue to conceal their sin or cover their sin, that you would happily, willingly, once they confess their sin, that you will happily, wonderfully forgive them. Lord, I pray that you would make that abundantly clear. And for the person who, who's never had a right relationship with you, all of this sounds so very crazy. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you love them so much that you sent Jesus to die for them. For the person whose aching heart longs to be forgiven. Lord, I pray even now that they would confess their sin and trust Christ and then receive forgiveness and hope. Lord, help us to always remember we can't hold on to sin and hope at the same time. We have to let go of one or the other. In Jesus' name, amen.